Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. We've been blessed with over a hundred years of national parks now, beginning with Yellowstone in 1872, right on up to Pinnacles in 2013, the 59th and most recent national park to join the list. There are other kinds of natural national treasures, though. Protected monuments and seashores and recreation areas, plus an abundance of state-run parks and lands. And with any luck, they'll be with us for a hundred more years, barring anything like what happened with Bears Ears National Monument. At the time this episode was recorded, the fate of Bears Ears was up in the air until President Obama designated it a national monument, only to have President Trump strip it of 85% of its designated lands. This week, while I'm on vacation traversing the national parks of the American Southwest, we're revisiting one of the first interviews I did with Terry Tempest Williams, who marked the centennial of the National Park Service with what she calls a personal topography, a book named The Hour of Land. From the Grand Tetons to the Gulf Islands, Alcatraz to the Arctic, Williams imbues each place with the depth of history, a sense of longing, and her indelible close observation of the peaks and twigs around her. Thanks so much for joining us, Terry. Thank you so much for asking. So in the Hour of Land, you write about 12 of our national parks, which span all four corners of America and lots of places in between. You write in the introduction that this project tested your limitations as a writer, that you thought it would be easy and almost exuberant but that you came up against some challenges. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think every writer has to ask themselves with each project, by what authority do I write this book? And it was very clear to me that, you know, I'm not a historian, I'm not a scientist, I'm not engaged in public policy in Washington, and I don't work for the National Park Service. Uh, I'm a citizen of this country. Um, I'm writing out of love, and the authority from which I write is as a storyteller. You do talk to a lot of national park workers and activists and integrate these subjects into the narrative. So how did you decide where to fit these pieces into the narrative about the parks at large? It's a great question. 
you know, I think each park asked to have a different story told, and each chapter, um, I hope, has an integrity to the park under exploration. So for me, Grand Teton National Park is my mother park. It's where our family has migrated for years. Not a day, not a year of my life has has passed without a view of the Grand Teton. So that chapter is about family. Uh, I entered Big Bend National Park on the edge of the Rio Grande with beginner's eyes, and I think it holds all the characteristics of poetry. A chapter like Gettysburg is, is written in seasons because I think each season shifts in that bloodied landscape where they say that turkey vultures still have a memory of carrion. So it's a puzzle. It's it's about listening. And I think more than anything, I realized that this book is about subversives, subversive park rangers like Valerie Naylor, who was the superintendent of Theodore Roosevelt National Park, John D. Rockefeller, who surreptitiously bought up lands under the Snake River Land Company in Grand Teton National Park, to our president, Barack Obama, who in 2012, as a former community organizer, created a national monument to celebrate another community organizer, Cesar Chavez. So whether it's national park employees or someone like Tim DeChristopher, uh, who bought up oil and gas leases as an act of civil disobedience in 2008, and each individual I spoke with carries a piece of that mosaic. How did you choose which of those parks you were going to visit, and were there any that didn't make the list? There's so many that didn't make the list. Uh, I think I, you know, I knew the parks that were skin, blood, flesh to me. Grand Teton National Park, Canyonlands National Park, where we live in Castle Valley, Utah, in southern Utah. Um, Acadia, a landscape that our family has frequented for years. There were other parks that I had never been to, like Gates of the Arctic or Gettysburg. And then there were the parks that I had been to but wanted to explore more fully. And then there was Effigy Mounds National Monument on the border of Iowa and Wisconsin and the great Mississippi River that I had never even heard of. And honestly, if you were to ask me out of the 12 national parks that, that I chose, that was the big surprise to me. Um, and I would list that as one of my top five most amazing places I've ever been, to see those effigy mounds in the shapes of bears and wolves and snakes and, and birds with a wingspan of over 200 feet. You walk those effigies with your feet as a prayer and think of the Ho-Chunk people. You know, we talk about how our parks are overcrowded, and I was recently in Yosemite, and at one point I thought, really, what's the difference between Yosemite Village and Disneyland? Um, but then you go to a park like Effigy Mounds, and literally there is nobody there. Brooke and I rose at dawn and walked for 12 miles, and we were met with birds, indigo buntings, rose-breasted grosbeaks, the wind. Yeah. But even in a place like Yosemite or Yellowstone, that magic is still available. It's just a little bit further off the beaten path. I think that's right. And I have come to appreciate parks like Yellowstone, Yosemite, Grand Canyon um, as places of pilgrimage. And if I go with that expectation, then I, I feel very kindly toward my fellow species. If I go with the idea that I'm going to have a wilderness experience, then, you know, I can be less than generous. 
So I wanted to ask about specifically your visit to Teddy Roosevelt National Park with your dad. As you said, he's an oil and gas man, and you're an environmentalist. One of your brothers even worked in the back in oil fields that you visited on that trip to Teddy Roosevelt Park. Do you feel like anything differentiates your appreciation of the national parks from your father's? I really don't. My father loves these parks. Uh, he was known when he was in college as Teton Tempest. You know, every Friday night when he was done laying pipe in the trench, you know, he and his buddies drove up to Jackson, Wyoming and camped Friday night, hiked all day Saturday and Sunday, and they were back, you know, at 6 a.m. On, on Monday. My father knows that landscape far better than I ever will. Um, and I think even with Teddy Roosevelt, when he saw the scale and the rapidity of the Bakken, when we were there, they were taking out a million barrels of oil a day. The workers were were living 12 men in a storage unit without windows. There's something deeply disturbing about that. And my father was, was the most upset um, between Valerie, the superintendent, and myself. You know, there seems to be like this knee-jerk reaction, like people within oil industry, within coal industry, within natural gas industry can't really collaborate with environmentalists. But collaboration is a huge theme in your book, structurally, from including photographs and poetry with your own writing, and then also thematically with stories of American Indian tribes working with state organizations on a plan for the Black Ears National Monument, and uh, in other ways, too. How do you think collaboration plays into the future of the national parks? I think national parks have always been collaborative because it's taken um, people with vision, people with money, people on the ground, people in local communities, and people in Washington to make these things happen. And the example that you give, Bears Ears National Monument proposal that is being led by 25 tribes in the Colorado Plateau, Navajo, Diné, uh, Hopi, Zuni, the Ute tribes among them, is such a beautiful example of this. And it's also a beautiful example of an evolving idea that the very people that the National Park Service has displaced um, would be coming forward saying, work with us, collaborate us. We are asking for co-governance to protect these two million acres of land adjacent to Canyonlands National Park as our home ground, as our ceremonial grounds, as our grounds where our ancestors' bones are buried, where our medicines are found. And I'm hoping that that our president who cares about um, displaced people, people of color, diverse communities, especially in our national parks, will, will see this wisdom and see it as a great healing between Native people, the tribes, and the United States government, even the National Park Service at this centennial. Yeah, you talk about um, an evolving idea of national parks. That's important because there's been a history of opposition in the creation of federal lands um, and in their maintenance, too. So even uh, the, the uh, standoff in Mallor Wildlife Refuge or the reclamation in 1969 of Alcatraz Island by American Indian activists, like these are, these are both arguments that are happening about the creation of federal land. But more generally, even among people who support this, you write about this mission rivalry of protection versus use, preservation versus education, cultural versus environmental. So where in our parks do you see that tension playing out more strongly? 
Well, I always think Utah is the most contentious place on the planet, and I know that's not true. Bears Ears is an example of that. Even though our governor and Rob Bishop, our congressman, are directly opposed, um, we even had our Senator Orrin Hatch threaten that there would be violence should this happen. I think that's irresponsible. And, you know, although you made the parallel between the Bundys and Malheur with the American Indian takeover in Alcatraz in the 70s, I would argue they're very different. Um, the Native people um, at Alcatraz were claiming the rock as as their own home ground, and I think that had very different political implications. However, I do think what you're saying about the conflict over public lands and those who want to take the public out of that um, to where their private lands is really problematic, and I think we have to have... Uh, serious conversations that can only be collaborative. And I think we have to listen to one another and really look hard at the story that each constituency is telling, and then maybe come up with a new story, a different narrative. Can you talk a little bit more about art's relation to our national parks, especially photography and writing? Well, on the cover of the book, we have Carlton Watkins' image very dramatic image of El Capitan, and that was taken in 1860. Those were the images by Carlton Walkers, by Moybridge, by all of these early photographers that went to Abraham Lincoln in the 1860s to say, we need to protect this beautiful place called Yosemite. And it was Abraham Lincoln who, in 1864, created the Yosemite Land Grant. It was the first time where public lands were brought into the public commons. And the photographies were hugely responsible for that. In the same way that today, you know, we have great photographers who are showing us why these things matter. A Navajo photographer, Will Wilson, who has a brilliant photograph in the book of three Navajo men wearing gas masks standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. That image says so much about regional haze, about air pollution, about Peabody coal, and what's at stake. So I think art bypasses rhetoric and pierces the heart. We not only see it, but we feel it. And it goes beyond words. So there's this great anecdote in the book where you find yourself giving a reading at a spa to two elderly women who turn out to be none other than Lady Bird Johnson and Liz Carpenter. Um, <laughs> it was very, very funny um, and moving, too. And I want to read what Lady Bird Johnson said to you, because I think it ties into this idea of art bypassing rhetoric and, and piercing the heart. So she says, beautiful language isn't enough. You have to be very smart about what you are doing when talking about the environment. You have to reach people where they are, not where you are. You must find out what they care about and build relationships with them, involve them in your cause. Then you can speak like a writer. But until then, you must speak like one of them. Do you wrestle with that question? You know, that really changed my life. And I'll never forget we were at this crazy Austin Lake spa and all I had to do was show up in a bathrobe and give a reading to whoever came. And you're absolutely right. Two elderly women showed up and, you know, one looked familiar. Um, but I thought this is, this will be easy. I'm with my sister-in-law. So I give this reading from red about Utah's red desert. And at the end she says, why Miss Williams, that's very, very beautiful. But now you tell me in real terms, for real people, why this land matters to you. Forgive my accent. But then 
you know, you quoted her statement and I wrote every word down. And I do think that's the challenge. And I think when climate change bears on us and a divided country, how do we speak in a language that can touch our hearts? And I, th- I think it's through storytelling. The other thing that was really interesting to me is Lady Bird Johnson said, you know, that she would never forgive Lyndon's men who made her call her environmental agenda a beautification project. But then she said, I got much further by talking about beauty than I would have the end of development. So the national parks are a really old idea. They were founded just after the Battle of Gettysburg. They're part of a line of environmental thinking that goes back to John Muir. And climate change on a global scale wasn't even dreamed of then. So what kind of role does this past understanding have to play in their future? I would argue one thing. I actually think that America's national parks are a very new idea um, in in the scope of history. And I think it's a radical idea. I think the fact that President Obama just created Stonewall National Monument on the heels of Orlando was very, very significant and powerful. And we'll look back historically as, as a moment met. And right now I keep dreaming of this triple crown that through the Antiquities Act of 1906, um, President Obama could create the Maine Woods National Monument, that he could create the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge as a monument to protect the native people there and their livelihood, the Gwich'in people, the Athabascan people, the Inupiaq people, and Bears Ears on the edge of Canyonlands. To me, this is a National Park Service for the future. A lot of the collaboration that we've seen between these different groups is new. And in some ways, the idea of the National Parks, as you said earlier, was kind of radical for its time too, like putting aside national lands to not be used, especially in the age of industrialism. That was crazy. In in this country, we seem to base everything on economics. How much money can we make? And I think what we're realizing now is, ultimately, it's not about money. Greed is killing us. It's isolating us. And I think what we really need is to learn how to listen. And if we can learn to listen to the land we can learn to listen to each other. And I think this book really allowed me to think about what are the stories that we privilege and who benefits from those stories. I mean, you could go to Gettysburg National Battlefield um, a few years ago and never heard the word slavery. It was only about strategies, war, munitions, and generals. Now that's not the case. And that really was largely due to leaders within the African-American communities, um, politicians, and historians that said there's a deeper story here, there's a wider story here, and that story needs to be told. And that is the story of slavery. Were there any other national parks whose narratives have changed significantly in the past decades? You know, I think Effigy Mound's narrative has shifted. There was a a very ugly situation where um, a former superintendent just bulldozed right through a burial ground. And many of those bones were found in garages. Bridges are are trying to be built. The new superintendent has been very mindful of that. And Albert Lebeau, the cultural manager there, who's Lakota, has reached out to the various tribes 
um, as an archaeologist and is really balancing those two worlds. And I think in Glacier National Park, the story is changing. It may be that within 15 years, there will be no more glaciers after a park that was named after them. There's 15 active glaciers that remain. Um, that story is also widening with the Blackfeet there. If you go to Glacier National Park, that is now also an international park, you see the American flag, you see the Canadian flag, and you see the Blackfoot flag. You can read more of Terry Tempest Williams' meditations on our national parks in The Hour of Land. The book also features poems from Jory Graham and black and white photographs of the parks, curated by Frisch Brandt. It would make for great reading on a road trip to a national park this summer. And although Terry skips the Grand Canyon, don't worry, I'll be checking on it to make sure it's still there. We'll see you next week with an all-new episode. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.